Success Leaves Clues. Welcome to the Health Business Growth Show, where we take you behind the scenes of the top health businesses to learn how they built their success. I'm your host, JJ Bergen, founder of the Mindshare Collaborative, along with members of our Mindshare Mentor Team. Each week, we are joined by some of the most brilliant, innovative health business experts you're going to ever meet. These folks have built empires from scratch, navigated the choppy waters of entrepreneurship, and will be sharing both their struggles and their successes on the journey of creating a thriving health business. So if you're ready to take your business to the next level by learning from the best, you are in the right place. So let's get this party started. We are so glad you are here. You are in for such a treat. Honestly, I feel like we should call this interview with the Jack Canfield, Jack Canfield Unplugged, because we are kind of pulling back the kimono and sharing some really cool stories and some of his life that I'd never heard before. And I've known Jack for 20 years now. We are going to call this the success system that never fails. You are going to be hearing from Jack Canfield. You know him from a couple different things, probably success principles. He's known as America's number one success coach. He's a best-selling author, of course, multiple times over 600 million copies of Chicken Soup for the Soul, by the way. I mean, that is just crazy. And he's a featured teacher in The Secret. He's been on everything from Oprah to The Today Show to Larry King Live to Fox and Friends. And he even has not one, but two Guinness World Record titles. He's a member of the National Speakers Hall of Fame. And he is also the co-author of more than 200 books. And what he's really focusing on now is success. And we are going to be digging into success. What does success mean to him and in general? And what is that proven system for success that, if you follow it, never fails? Intriguing? Yes? Okay. So we're going to dive in with Jack Canfield, and you're going to want to learn more about what Jack is up to because it's a lot and there's things that you can jump in and participate in as well. So you can go to www.jackcanfield.com and hang out because I will be right back with Jack Canfield. Wherever you are in your health business building journey, well, maybe you're just dialing in your transformational offer or adding a new income stream or scaling to seven figures and beyond. We all have one need in common, an audience. And that's why the theme for this year's Health Business Growth Virtual Conference is How to Build a Large, Loyal Audience. Hi, I'm JJ Virgin, founder of the Mindshare Collaborative and one of the hosts of this year's conference. I'll be joined by expert instructors and your peers who will be sharing exactly what they've done to attract, engage, and nurture their audience so that they become long-term loyal clients. There is a success path, and we will be walking you through it so that you can leave with a custom plan that you can put into action on Monday. We call it the Mindshare Audience Ascension Matrix, and we will be walking through the seven steps and sharing the best online and offline strategies. Literally, what is working right now to take the guesswork out of list building. You'll learn how to grow and nurture the most important asset in your business and a simple ninja strategy that you can do to get your audience to raise their hand and say yes to what you have to offer. 
This three-day event is happening March 15th through 17th. Get a group of your peers together and participate. And be sure to join us for bonus networking sessions designed to help you find your perfect collaborative partners. One of the top strategies, by the way, that I use to build my multi-million dollar health business. So go ahead, grab your virtual seat. There's no risk. We offer a money-back guarantee. Grab your ticket today for the Health Business Growth Conference by visiting ms365.io forward slash hbgc24 for 24. I'll repeat that. It's ms365.io forward slash hbgc24. See you there. Jack, welcome to the Health Business Growth Show. I am like so honored to have you here. I'm so excited to be with you. I know. I just adore and love you to pieces. Love and it. you spoke for the community a couple of years back when we did our Health Business Growth Show, I think, or something during the pandemic yeah, that was virtual. Yeah. And you just, everybody loved you. Oh, great. No surprise. And you talked then about success. And, you know, I think people think of you in two different ways. They either think of chicken soup for the soul, right? Mm -hmm. Or they think of you in terms of success because you have success principles, you train success coaches. And so I think a fitting starting question is sure. success. What does it mean to you? I'll give you a little historical perspective. Success to me originally meant being able to produce any result you wanted to produce. So whatever it was, if you could do that, you were successful. And then when I met David Klamustow and it was my mentor, it was $600 million. He taught me a lot about wealth and money. And I was kind of a wasn't a hippie in the 60s, but it was definitely kind of countercultural. So like working for a big corporation, which, you know, I thought was polluting the environment and not treating people well. I didn't want to be part of that. And he taught me that money is not a four-letter word. Wealth is not a four-letter word. You should live, give yourself permission to have that. It's both and, not either or. And so for a while, I think success meant financial success, career success, you know, writing books that would be on bestseller lists and so forth. And then I'd say about 10 years ago, my definition of success morphed into fulfilling my soul's purpose. I truly believe that everybody is born with a purpose. And for some people, it's to be a baker. For some people, it's to be a mechanic. For some people, like my son, is to be a singer. My daughter is a singer and a comedian. My stepson went to Warden, and he's a business guy. When he was six years old, he borrowed money from me to start a business. I said, you got to go make a business plan. I was already trying to like mentor, you know, and he came back with one. And what did you do with that business plan? There was a time when there were these scooters. They, they looked like they were aluminum or something. We were all the rage. All the kids were buying. I had $75 if you bought one like online or Amazon or something. He found out he could buy them imported for $35, sell them for $55, undercut Amazon by $20, make $20 profit. And I said, well, how much do you need as investment capital? You got to pay me 8%, which is what I can get normally on my stock investments, you know? So I let him, I don't know, some hundreds of dollars. He went and did it. And he never stopped being that way. And that was, how old was he when he did the scooter thing? I think he was somewhere between six and 10. I don't know the exact age. He was like, he'd do it in elementary school. I love that so yeah. much. Yeah. So I think, you know, you're into health and fitness and all that. And that's your essence is that. Since a little kid. Yeah. Two things like the business side of it and the lemonade stands and all that. And everything was health. Always was. Which drove my mother, who was from the Midwest. And I was like, no, we're not going to have the white bread. No, we're not. Can <laughs> you imagine? She would give me Wonder Bread bologna sandwiches for school. And I like revolted against all of this. Yeah. So what I, about yours? What's your core purpose? My purpose is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy. And then I added when the 
meltdown happened financially when all the people were doing all this bad stuff on Wall Street and foundations were going out of business. And I said, for the highest good of all concerned. So you could do all that, but if it was going to hurt other people, mm -hmm. if they'd been thinking about everybody instead of just themselves, then they would never have done that, you know? So I added that. But basically, I, I want to go back to you talking about the white bread and your mother and all that. From the time I was young, I was a leader. I just was always a leader. I was just like, if we were putting together a marbles game, I was the one getting all the pieces mm -hmm. and telling everyone where to sit and whatever. And I was in the high Y, which was a Christian group and when I was a kid. And Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia, born in Texas. By the time I was six, my dad had lived in three states. So I don't remember much of that. Then we settled in Wheeling, West Virginia, about 52 miles southwest of Pittsburgh. And then across the river in Martins Ferry, Ohio, kind of like Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then back to Wheeling. And I always tell people, Wheeling's a great city to be from. You don't want to live there, but being raised there, if you were out of school at 1.30 in the afternoon and you're walking down the street, someone would go, aren't you Ellen Campfield's boy? Shouldn't you be in school? <laughs> that doesn't happen in New York City. Right. You know? So it was, a, it was a good community. I learned a lot there. But I, I was entrepreneurial. I used to charge kids a nickel to come watch my mother breastfeed my brother. <laughs> what? <laughs> so have you ever, ever seen anyone breast? No. My mom is breastfeeding my brother. If you give me a nickel, I'll take you. Did <laughs> your mom know what was going on? I don't think she knew about the nickel part. <laughs> <laughs> but then you, you went and you first were a teacher, right? I was. I taught high school. So I went to Harvard, undergraduate Chinese history, thought I was going to go to the State Department. I got involved in the civil rights movement my senior year, and I thought I could make a difference if I was taught in an all-black school, but I had to get a teacher's diploma. So... I went to the University of Chicago and we did this practice year of teaching. It was three-fifths. I was, I was there all day, really. And then weekend classes. And it was an all-black school called Cayman High School. I learned that these kids, the biggest issue they had was low self-esteem. They did not believe in themselves. Their parents hadn't been successful. Many of these kids had never been more than 10 blocks from their home. And they didn't know their own history. So I bought this one book. It was called Before the Mayflower. And it was by Lerone Bennett. It was African-American history. And I got everyone a book, school wouldn't pay for it. And I taught that. And as a result, the kids came to me and said, will you be the sponsor for the Calumet African-American Society where we can study Africa? And I went, yeah, okay. I got investigated by the FBI. They, this was like, you know, in the sixties, they thought somehow I was creating some kind of African-American like terrorist thing <laughs> or something, you know, it was very bizarre. But anyway, I got teacher of the year award. And one of my favorite memories is Sammy Davis Jr. came to our school to present, sing, and dance to his comedy routine. And before that, he was in the wings. They handed me the Teacher of the Year award. And as he was walking on his stage, he looked at me and said, you must be a really good guy. When you're like 23 or something, that was like, are you kidding? Yeah. So that was the beginning of me really focusing on the affective, emotional mindset development that was became more important than history for me. And then I was so good at it, they asked me to teach other teachers that. And then I met this guy, W. Clement Stone, and I worked for his How office. did you meet this guy, W. Clement Stone? So I was teaching, I went from the University of Chicago, taught, practiced, taught at Calumet, got a job at a Job Corps Center. Job Corps was developed for people who had dropped out of high school, and now they realize they've made a mistake and they wanted an education, but maybe they were too old to go back to school or there wasn't a bill. So we had about 350 kids at this ex-VA hospital. And I was teaching basic skills like reading and math and so forth. We were developing the first self-directed learning, meaning that 
we took all the lessons for learning to read and we put them on a cassette so you could take yourself through the cassette tape at your own speed. It's like early Nightingale Conant, that, before Nightingale Conant. That people get online and they take themselves. We started that. It was, wow. like, it was amazing. That is wild. Yeah. I mentioned I was interested in, in self-esteem and, and, and helping these kids achieve. And it was a guy named Woody Wickham who was on the staff there. And he had studied with this guy at Harvard who was an expert on, on motivation, David McClellan. And he said, there's a guy here in Chicago who's got a foundation called the Achievement Motivation Foundation. You should go work there. And I said, okay. So I went to a weekend workshop. And it was mind-blowing, talking about goals and visualization and affirmation and purpose. And this was in the values. 60s. Yeah, this was, yeah, like 19, what, 1969, 70, right in that okay. page. And I went there, and this is what happened. So many just things that line up that change your life. So Richard Nixon got elected, and he closed down every government program that was in a Democratic congressman's district. And then reopened it somewhere nearby at a Republican Congressman's district. It was very, you know, punishing kind of thing, you know. Guess he did earn his nickname. Yeah, he yeah. did. I was without a job while they were doing this transition. And I mentioned that when I went to this training. And they said, well, we need someone who's got inner city experience. We'll hire you. And so they were all doing teaching teachers in the suburbs how to do this work. And they hired me to do it. So I, I spent three years just teaching self-esteem and achievement motivation to teachers, to teach the kids, all through the Midwest, Michigan, Indiana, Iowa, Chicago. And then I went to a conference and there was a professor there from University of Massachusetts. And I went up afterwards, I said, wow, you're really cool. He was teaching values clarification. And he was teaching what? Values clarification. How do you clarify your values? Like the school doesn't tell you that. And your values are what run your life basically. So I told him what I did. And he said, let's have lunch. And then he said, I can get you a uh, fellowship. If you'll come to UMass, get your full scholarship, you'll be a teaching fellow and you get your doctorate. So I said, okay, <laughs> I moved to Massachusetts. <laughs> it was a great experience. I loved it. Met my first wife there and the whole thing was amazing. Now, did you get your doctorate there? I did not. I had there what they called an ABD, all but dissertation. I did that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great scene in the Cheech and Chong movie where it's a law, the legal thing, and they go, badges? We don't need those stinking <laughs> badges. And I, and I, that got to me, like a dissertation, pitch. I don't need uh, a doctorate. Because I'd written a book while I was a doctoral student called 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in the Classroom. It took off. It sold 400,000 copies. Okay, so you wrote the book. Who published the book? This was an education publisher who I, for some reason, I'm blanking on the name right now, but they were a big deal. And what they had, which was so fortunate for me, they had the number one direct mail marketer in the world, in the book industry. And he did things like he sent out mailings, big trucks full of postage bags, full mm -hmm. of the, the things. Every first grade teacher in Rhode Island. And if it sold well, he then sent it out to every first grade teacher in Pennsylvania. And if that sold well, he sent it out to every first grade teacher in America. Then he'd try third grade teacher, seventh grade teacher. It's all very tested out. And it just took off. And so all of a sudden I'm getting invited. 100,000 copies for your first I know. book. I get invited all over the place to speak. So I'm going to all these educational conferences and speaking. And then they want you to come from the state conference at our local school and from the national conference at the state conference. And it was almost like someone had just lined up a series of events. I just had to like participate, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Wow. Prentice Hall, that was the name of the publisher. Oh, okay. Prentice yeah, Hall, yeah, you know. yeah. Prentice Hall. So how did you go from there to the Chicken Soup series? Okay, so I'm teaching. And what I realized was when I was teaching high school, if I was telling a story, let's say we're teaching history and I'm talking about Frederick Douglass, who was an escaped slave. I'm telling a story about him and I later became the investor of Jamaica. And, and the kids are like this, you know. And if I get an Ebony magazine, I tell them a story about someone who grew up in a ghetto and they're now the head of this cosmetics company. But if I was teaching historical facts, they're like hmm, yeah. looking out the window. I realized the power of story. So I started bringing more stories into my teaching. And then when I was teaching teachers, if I told stories about how something I had used had had an impact on somebody, then they wanted to use that. So then there was a recession around 93, as you may remember, and all the education money dried up. There was just no in-service training money. People mm. weren't being able to go to conferences. So we had to go general public, start doing seminars in hotels. And when I'd go out to speak, doing a lot of corporate gigs and things, people would come up and go, that story you told about the puppy, is that in a book? My daughter needs to read that. That story about the little kid that climbed Mount Everest with one leg. My sales team needs to read that. So I'm coming back from Boston. I'll never forget Boston to LA. And I thought, how many stories do I know? So I took out a notepad and I write down the Girl Scout story, the puppy story, the one-legged kid story, you know, whatever. I had 70 stories. And I thought, what's well, enough for a book? So I said, I'm going to write two stories every week, Monday through Wednesday, and then on Thursday through Saturday and Sunday, I'll just relax. And within a year, I'll have a book. So that's what I did. And then Mark Victor Hansen, who ended up being my co-author, we're having breakfast. How did you meet up with him? I went to a conference called the Holistic Health Conference. You would have loved it. No kidding. Yeah. No, really. <laughs> it was all about holistic health and, you know, things I never knew about, acupuncture. How did you end up fishing. at this conference? Because I got interested in health. I'm interested in pretty much everything. You know, I sit in the doctor's office. You're definitely a curious a, guy. Yeah. I yeah. pick up a chemistry book, start reading it, you know, if that's what's the only thing to read. But anyway, I had got into health when I was in Amherst in graduate school. My best friend owned a health food store. We used to play racquetball together. So that kind of introduced me to things. And so I was a vegetarian for 17 years and I started eating meat again, but it was all consciously happening. And then they were teaching things like meditation and yoga and movement and things that I thought would be interesting. And Mark was doing a talk called how to double your income and double your time off in two years or less. And I thought, I need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> what a great subject line that was. <laughs> so I, I went to his session and when he was like, remember overheads? You know, the little cardboard things you put on the screen. Oh, yeah. The projectors. Projectors, yeah. <laughs> so I used to carry those around and so did he. So he's putting all his overheads together after his talk and everyone's leaving. I woke up and I said, would you like to have lunch? He said, yeah. And we had lunch and we've been friends ever since. So we were having breakfast. He said, what are you working on? And I said, I'm doing this book. What's it about? I said, they're inspirational stories. Tell me a couple. I told him. And he said, you should let me do that book with you. I said, Mark, that's like telling a novelist who's like four-fifths of the way through his book that like, you should go author. <laughs> I said, why would I do that? And he said, number one, at least 10 of the stories you tell, you stole from me. And he said, number two, I'm a great marketer and salesperson. And you're not that great. It would be a great partnership. Now, I only learned about four years ago, he did that with everyone he ever met. So, oh, no, kidding. So, so, <laughs> so I was just, you know, uh, anyway. But you were charmed and thought, huh. Yeah, but we did it. And I said, Funny. send me 10 good stories. It seemed to work out okay. And it worked out beautifully. We're a great partnership. That series, which we started, we've eventually sold the company to an investment group in New York, but 600 million books sold That's around just the world. 
50, Insane 51 languages. Because the average person who writes a book mm-hmm. sells how many copies? If they're lucky, seven to 20,000. Yeah. Yeah. So 600 million. Yeah. What's interesting is if you look at the New York Times list, paperback and hardback, there's 60 spaces. Almost 600,000 books a year are published. And the same books are always on the list. It's like you look every week and you know that James Clear is going to be there. That's you know, right. it's like there's just certain books you're like, they're there yeah, every Tim week. Tim Ferriss was there like for five years. Oh, yeah. You know, and and I read for our work week and I think there must be a missing chapter in that book because I read it and all of a sudden I'm working like 70 hours a week. Well, so is he, <laughs> by the way. Okay. Because I was like, yeah. hold on. No, he wrote that book. He was really working a four-hour work week. And then the rest of the time, he was off winning tango contests in Argentina, stuff like that. Because I became good friends with him. He invited me to speak up at the Silicon Valley Entrepreneur Council thing he created. And the reason he invited me is he wanted to basically interview me about how to be a best-selling author. So he charmed me into coming ah. up and giving me a presentation. <laughs> so he would, but he literally, what he did was he learned Blogging was the, the big thing. So he went to the blogging convention. He started forwarding everyone else's blog. So when his book came out, he said, would you blog about my book? And they all went, yeah, we love you. So he, he kind of surpassed me in terms of the modern way to market books. But still, The Road Less Traveled by, I forget his name right now. But anyway, he was on the list for 12 years. No I'm kidding. 12 years, 600. I wasn't paying attention to the list back when 600 he 600 was- plus weeks. And what was interesting about it, and I learned from, because I talked to him, like, when we brought Chicken Soup out, we interviewed 12 best-selling authors, like John Gray and people like that. This guy was one of them. And he said, every day, he said, for the first year, every day, I did three interviews a day, three a day. For the next 11 years, I did one a day, every day. Who's the, the TEDx guy down in Florida? Grant Cardone. Uh, Grant Cardone. By 7.30 in the morning, he's done two or three of those, you know? And that's what it mm-hmm. takes to play this game we all play. So I learned. Which is why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Do it you. When I did Virgin Diet, and you know, my son's in the hospital, and I am still, UCLA lent me a little room, and I was doing my interviews. I've like remembered all the stuff that you'd I, said. I remember like, that. I, when you told me that story, I think it was backstage of the, in a presentation. Yeah, it was. Presenting. I was like blown away that you would, first of all, they would give you room. Secondly, what what you were going through with your son, you had the mindset to be able to do it, to like shift gears from concerned parent to what you were doing. It's actually easier. It's easier to step over here and do an interview and forget about this for a little bit. So it was a lot of To be honest. And I also look at that situation. And again, it's important because success really is your like big through line umbrella when I think of you now, success was not optional. When he got hit, I was the primary financial support. Now, the first thing I asked was like, what are the limits on the health insurance? And fortunately, we had no limits. But most of the stuff that we've done to bring him back, it's not covered. Not covered. Not covered. Yeah. And so I literally looked at this situation as I was holding his finger, telling him he was going to be 110%. I'm like going, all right, this thing has to really go now. And so I often think about it and go, what if success had been optional? We often say in this work of success, you have to have a big enough why to push you yeah. through any of the limitations and blockages that come up. You had a huge why. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get bigger than that. Yeah. Than one of your loved ones. So what do you see with obstacles with people going in and wanting to be successful? 
and what's stopping them or blocking them? Well, first of all, let me say this. I have a new context about obstacles. There's a couple of books that have come out. One of them's called What's in the Way is the Way. And then there's another one, like similar title about obstacles. And they're really, they are the thing that you need to deal with. Because whatever that obstacle is, as you handle it, you develop new qualities, new strengths, new behaviors. You know, we always see those t-shirts that say, he who dies with the most toys wins. I don't believe that. But I think that if you don't have a goal that is inspiring to you, like you, you had to have that achievement, then you don't push through the obstacles. And it's the overcoming of the obstacles where you develop qualities like perseverance and strength and the ability to ask for support and, yeah, that and to overcome one. the things that have been lock- blocking you, which is usually limiting beliefs, which are unconscious and fear. And so the more things that show up, fear of asking, fear of failing, fear of looking foolish, fear of looking like I'm being conned by somebody, all of that stuff stops us. And then our limiting beliefs, you know, it's not okay to have money. You can't ask for things that you're, you're a burden if you do all that. When you have to do it to be successful, it's not just the car and the new house. That can disappear. Your house can burn down. Your wife can leave you. All that. Who you became in the process can never be taken away. I mean, you and I have beliefs now about ourselves and self-confidence and self-trust that we might not have had when we first started out. And I don't care what happens unless we get dementia. We're not ever going to go back to those. Right. It's interesting because I'm at a point right now, and the other book I think you might be thinking of is I love this so much, and I just heard him speak, is Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way. Yeah, exactly. He's got Ego is the Enemy, Stillness is the Key, The Obstacle is the Way. I'm like, this is the best trilogy ever. Yeah, it's exactly. Like so exactly. Good. It's so good. But I'm at a point where I'm I'm starting over on one of my businesses and really kind of starting out with a new brand, new book, et cetera. And, you know, someone said, oh, you know, you're going to need to start small. And, t- and I go, yes, however, I'm not starting over, over the way I was before. Yeah, first yeah. of all, like going through what I went through with Grant, and that was not my first rodeo of challenges. It's like, you know, when you go through a really challenging thing, you start to realize that most of the things people get slipped up by they don't even register on my screen. It's like, mm-hmm. it doesn't even, like the radar wouldn't even have a blip right. on it. But I look at it and go, okay, so I'm going to start with this and build this. Things change. Like you talked about, you were coaching someone on how to do a best-selling book and now, now it's blogging. Well, maybe now it's podcasts or maybe it's dancing on TikTok, God forbid, whatever it is. Right? By the way, I, I would just say this, anyone's watching, is not, I think it is podcasts. And this distinction I, I learned recently, if you do a radio show like, Boston, WBZ. And how many radio shows have you done in your lifetime, do you think? I've done over a thousand radio shows. I I have actually some kind of compulsion. I have listed everything (laughs) I've ever done. You know, the podcast I did with you, it's a list. I wish I'd done this. I know. I I don't know why I did it. I I do. W. Clarence Stone, my mentor, said, keep a a victory log. So whenever you're thinking you didn't accomplish much, you open the log and you go, oh my God, I did all that. So it's a self-esteem builder. That's fantastic. And so I've been doing that. But anyway, if I'm on a radio show, there might be 500,000 people listening, but maybe only a thousand of them are parents that need to hear what I was going to say about parenting. But if you're on a podcast about parenting, everybody there is your target audience, your best fit audience. And it lives there. Yeah. And there's SEO and they can go find it. Yeah. Both podcasting and then taking that podcast and putting it on YouTube and then taking the both of them and turning it into a blog. I mean, there's a lot of noise, but we are able to be so specific. Well, here's another thing I teach. We all know about gravity. We all know that the larger an object is like a planet, the more gravity it has, right? 
So the more things you have out in the universe, like you take that one podcast, you chop it up into things that are now blogs, you put it on YouTube, maybe a little piece of that goes on the Instagram reel, whatever, all that exists, there's more gravity. So the more things you have existing in space, the more attraction to you and your work there is, the more likely they're going to find you. Oh my God, she's all over the place. She must know what she's talking about. Jordan Harbinger, who had the House of Charm, and then they kicked him out and he had to start the Jordan Harbinger show, which he had to come back and do it again, did it like that. Yeah. But I went to a little talk he was doing because the name of the talk was like, why you shouldn't do a podcast from the guy who's like the right. podcast guy. I'm right. like, oh, I have to go hear this. Right. right. And someone was asking him, how do you decide who to have as a guest on your show? Now, there's 50 people in the room and I'm like sitting fairly close to him. And he goes, well, you know, I don't want that person that's just everywhere. Like if J.J. Virgin's coming out with a new book, he did not know it was me, right? And I'm sitting there and they're like <laughs> pointing at me. And I'm like, and he's like, oh, sorry. And I'm like, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Like, that is fantastic. Perfect. I, I won. I am everywhere. That's yeah, exactly it. That's funny. I love that you say that because so often I hear from people, they're like, oh, that podcast is too small. I go, I would rather be on the smaller podcast that is exactly for my demographic where they're hungry. I'd rather put the cookie shop right next to the pot shop, the marijuana shop, not the pot shop, than have a cookie shop next to another cookie shop next to a, everything else. You know, everyone wants to go on the biggest shows ever. I want to go on the right shows. Exactly. I did a children's book with someone a couple of years ago. We were on all, all these parenting podcasts. I mean, everywhere in Australia and New Zealand and the people were there. They really were hungry for information about what books should I be reading my kids. There's so many things that I love about you. One of the things I love the most is that I watch people as they ascend. And you said it earlier, like who you become working through these obstacles, that's the gift. But sometimes some of what I see them become, it's like they think they are it. Like mm -hmm. the ego, that's why I've been giving out a lot of ego is the enemy books in my mastermind. I'm like, don't fall prey to this. But just even what you said there of being willing to do the work, have a beginner's mind, go in and start doing podcasts with smaller mm -hmm. podcasts with a new book. How do you coach someone that starts to think that it's all because of them? They don't realize that in a lot of ways they're a channel with a big message and they've done the work, but they start to think it's all about them, when to me it's all about getting the message out to the world and how you can serve. I have a, I'm a big believer in kinesiology as a way to muffle test that mm -hmm. whole thing. What's coming to mind to say, and then we can go deeper with it, is recently someone taught me this. So I would always bring people up on stage and have them do, I can't, and I'm going to go weak, I, I can, or I'm going to be strong, things like that. And so recently this person said, have them think of a goal they have and only how it's going to serve them. Put their arm out, instantly go weak. Mm. Same goal. Could be, I want a Mercedes Benz. I want to be salesperson of the year at the real estate. But only think about how if you achieve that, it will serve others. Arms strong as hell. So basically, our essence is to be of service, not to be codependent, not to be self-facing and do too much and kill yourself and all that stuff, but to really be holding the position that when I'm doing this, even being me, just being authentically me, is being of service to people because I'm showing them how it's great to be authentic, you know? So that's a piece of it, showing people. And then secondly, helping remind them. So where did you learn all this? 
whose shoulders are you standing on? Yes. You know, without them, would you be here? So just a conversation and then look at books like you're mentioning, the ego. There's so much information out there about the ego and how it's based on fear. I haven't shared this with anyone on air yet, but I will today. So I do plant medicine, ayahuasca, and I go down to Costa Rica to this place called Rhythmia. And the last time I was there, it's a four-night curated journeys. And one of the nights they said, one of the intentions you could hold would be, show me how to forgive the unforgivable. And I thought, okay, I thought I'd forgiven everyone. <clears throat> a lot of therapy. And then I thought my mother, my dad, <laughs> people who embezzled from me, you know, whatever, stolen from me. But I said, let's go in there, see what happens. So, so I get in there, medicine takes over, and all of a sudden, Vladimir Putin comes up. I think, oh my God, forgive Vladimir Putin. This guy's got Navalny in a prison in Siberia. He kills his opponents. He poisons people in Europe. He's killed tens of hundreds of thousands of his own soldiers in Ukraine. Can I forgive that? Because he's such an evil person. Okay. And then all of a sudden, I was presented with this movie of his life story, you know, where he started and how he was small and kind of a Napoleon complex. And he wanted to be, he was working in the officer's club. He was like a servant and he wanted to be them and worked his way up. And what I then saw is he wants to be significant. So we have three drives, love and acceptance, achievement, competence, and significance. We want to know we're all three. We're worthy of love. We're competent. We can handle what happens. And we want to make a difference and have it acknowledged. That's his driver. I want to be significant. So if he puts the Soviet Union back together, he becomes like a Napoleon. He gets to be a historical figure. He gets Belarus back and Crimea back and Ukraine back and then the Polish reward. He wants that back. And then it flashes to my office door and it opens. And I'm in my mind walking into my office and there's like three feet of wall on either side and right in front of me because there's a, it's all diplomas, honorary doctorates, medals, Rotary Club acknowledgements. Presidents of America signing me, dear Jack, good luck. You know, we love your book. And I'm going like, this is just me proving to myself I'm significant. I'm a little Vladimir Putin. And I needed to know that I made a difference. And that was my ego. Wow. That was my ego. And so I would do things that were like self-destructive to me and my family. Like some, you would say, let's say you're a president of like Florida Central University or something. Come give this graduation speech. We can't pay you, but we'll give you an honorary doctorate. I go. Okay, now I'm away from home for three or four days. I'm away from my wife. I'm away from my kids. And I get to come home with this thing I can put in a frame <laughs> and put on. Well, I'm really significant now. You have to call me Dr. Canfield, you know? And I just saw how ridiculous that was. And that was like last year. I don't do that anymore. I, I say no like 10 times more often than I ever did. I don't care to promote all that stuff, you know? It's like I'm just being me. I am 10 times freer than you would have known me two years ago. When you started that story, the thing that popped into my brain before you, before you said Vladimir Putin, I went, oh, I totally was wrong about that because I thought, oh, because you mentioned everyone you forgave. And I go, but not you. So I was waiting. And uh -huh. then you said Vladimir Putin. I'm like, okay, I missed it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to take this one more place. Do you know who Simon Bowen is? No. He is really great with models. And he walked me through this model that I've taught at Mindshare where he says, you know, most healthcare practitioners, they're a practitioner, and you know, and it's, it's set up as a triangle. If you're a practitioner, you're transactional. You're trading time for money, and you know you're there because people will go, how much do you charge, right? right. And they're going to base their decision to see you on price because 
they could get adjusted by you or someone else. They could get that shot by you or someone else. Mm -hmm. It's never where you want to be, right? Because right. you're a commodity. The next level up there is an influencer. And that's where you're giving out this information. You're getting recognized for that. You've got how many likes and followers and everything else. But you might mention about selling something. They're like, oh my gosh, you tried to sell me something. Right? <laughs> you don't want to be there either. So the next level up is the hero. And this is where you know you're selling a transformation. You figured out who you serve, the problem you solve. You're selling a transformation. All of a sudden, people are coming to you. And it seems great for a while because you're it. They want to touch the guru right. until you realize you just created another problem for yourself. Like you're stuck again. Right. And the above that, and that is all ego right there. And I see a lot of people get stuck there and sure. they think they are the solution. They don't realize that when you move up, into this position of this sage. The sage now can duplicate himself, has created space for the heroes, has created a process that they can duplicate into others so that they can take this work out there into the world. And when you look at what you've done, you've done exactly that. You've stepped into sage, you've created these processes where now you have success coaches that use success trainers you've put out into the world, you know, but it is by being able to go, okay, it's not about me. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be the one all the time. I can actually yeah. raise people up. They may get bigger than I am, which is really to me a sign that you've really done it. Is yeah, they can mentees, it. like go win. Yeah. I was coaching one doctor years ago and and I helped her create the certification program and and she couldn't keep it going. It was so popular, but she wouldn't allow anyone to do anything outside of exactly how she taught it. Mm. So all those mini chefs had to follow her recipe. There was no other spices that could be added. Right, like, right. like there's art to this. How cool that they're taking your work and putting their spin on it. But that was not cool. <laughs> so I'd love you just to talk about that because that's where I see you in that beautiful well, sage I, role. I, no, I thank you for saying me because I think that's where I am. We've now trained and certified almost 6,000 trainers in pretty much every country, 117 countries. Then now we're translating a lot of that into different languages. Ken Honda's helping me get it into Japanese. We already have it in Spanish. And I, I don't want to create mini Jack Canfields. I want to create people that understand the principle. So like there is a process. Patty, my partner, named it the Canfield methodology. I would have preferred it didn't have Canfield on it, but she thought it was good for marketing. So we did. But it, it is a methodology of teaching the steps to success that always work. I call it the success system and never fails. Because I don't care what you apply it to, health, relationships, finance, money, impact, getting elected, Congress, whatever. And so for me... And there's certain politicians we don't want to have have this process. I'm just saying. Anyway, keep going. They're not attracted <laughs> to it. That's what's so funny. They're not Gosh, attracted to it. Because part of it has to do with coming from service, you know, uh -huh. coming from love. When I mentioned David McClellan at Harvard, he understood motivation better than anyone. He said there's three motivations. There's a connection with people, relational, that's what Bill Clinton had, I'll feel your pain, you know, <laughs> and then you had power, which is what Bush had. They did a study on him. He didn't care what he belonged to. He just wanted to be at the top of it, you know, hmm. and then you have achievement, solving the problem. So once Perot from Texas mm -hmm. ran for president, get rid of guns in the ghetto, no problem. We just go outside with metal detectors, we'll get all the guns, let's handle it, you know? So there's those motivations and, and you rarely get all of them in one person. But if you understand how to work with those different motivations, it can, it can be powerful. I don't know why we got off on that. But anyway, you're right about me wanting to empower people to understand the principles and then apply it. And then 
don't tell my story. You can use it, but tell your own story. Because if you haven't taken E plus R equals O of N plus response equals outcome and realized that all your outcomes are based on your response to an event and that everyone responds to events differently. Two twins, one becomes a drug addict, one becomes a successful businessman. Grew up in the same family, had all the same opportunities, same food they ate at dinner. Why did they become different? They made different decisions. And so we can go back and undecide or uncreate and recreate. Most people don't want to do that because it means like maybe they'll feel guilty, they have to own their power and all that kind of stuff. But if you have understood that principle and applied it to your life and you have a story, that's a better story than telling my story because you are embodying it when you're teaching. And that's what I want people to be able to do. Seems like you're well on your way there. (laughs) Let's close by just I'd love to hear what you're up to now, share with everybody and how they can find out more about you. First of all, just go to jackcanfield.com. C-A-N-F-I-E-L-D is the name and jackcanfield.com. Everything I do is there. What's new and fun, we've created a new ongoing mastermind group process called the uh, Legacy Club. What's cool about it is that you can join any month. It's a year-long program, but if you want to go February to February or May to May, it's designed so that every month there's a theme. When you do all of it, adds up to these principles that'll take you to where you want to go. Any goal, any, any business. So I'm excited about that. We're still continuing to train trainers and that's been evolving beautifully. I had a guy come to me. Here's one of my new lessons. I am now surrendering a lot more of my need to be in charge of things to people that are coming to me and saying, let me take this over for you. I can do it. So a guy came to me the other day and said, you have a goal to have a million trainers by the year 2030. You're way behind. (laughs) (laughs) He said, but I have a plan that can get you there. And I'd like to take it over and do it for you. And it won't cost you a penny. And we'll pay you. That sounds like a yes. (laughs) I went, okay. (laughs) So that's starting to happen, which is really fun. And then working on four books. One's called Unstuck. And it's a process that Lise Janelle developed and I've helped her Mm -hmm. develop. And how to identify your unconscious limiting beliefs and release them and replace them in just like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Doing a book called Living the Success Principles are all stories of people who either read the book, taken a seminar, applied it, had life transformed. Doing a book of cards, like these tarot card type things or oracle cards, where a woman who's into all that stuff went through the 54 principles of my book, made a card for each one. You take the cards, you shuffle them, you have a problem, say, okay, you pull a card. Card tells you what principle to go to. And then when you get to that principle, it tells you what essential oil you should be infusing mm. or putting on your chest or whatever, what crystal you want to have in your space, what mantra you want to be saying, and affirmation, and then read that chapter in the book. So that's really fun. And we have all this data that is amazing with people. And then I'm wearing one called The Power of Wow. Like, how do you create wow experiences for your clients, your customers, your family, your mm. relationship? So busy. A little bit. <laughs> Just make sure you get your workouts in. You know, it's, uh. <laughs> no, no, it's funny. The, 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 I'll, I'll cop this. So, okay. so I went to JJ at this convention last year and I said, you got to help me. And she did. And she gave me all the things to do. And I probably did them religiously for about, I don't know, four or five months. And then Thanksgiving happened. I went way <laughs> off and the pandemic was happening at the same time. So I was, I was not exercising and getting up and doing Zoom calls for people in Europe early in the morning. However, literally, 
on January 1st, I realized I needed to get back on track. And so the only thing I've, I've, I'm exercising, I'm lifting heavy, I'm moving, I'm stretching, I'm doing all the things you taught me, taking all the supplements and the creatine and the protein. And my heart's singing over here. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> and, and I've lost seven pounds since January 1st. And nice. I know it's not about losing pounds because you're putting on muscle. It's an indicator of, you know, yeah, stuff but, shifting. But I get it. Yeah. And so I'm back on track. So I okay. thank you. All right. I'm very well, happy. I'm glad you are. Very, very happy. <laughs> and I'm just happy we had this time together. And this was really, really fun. <laughs> it was really fun. And again, jackcampfield.com, easy peasy. And thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Here at the Mindshare Collaborative, we are committed to helping you increase your vision, income, and impact. One of the first things we'd love to support you on is adding a high-profit leveraged income stream so that you can enjoy more time and money freedom. And to help you get started, I've created the Health Professionals Playbook for building multiple streams of income that identifies five proven strategies for creating a sustainable income beyond your primary practice to create time and money freedom. To get your free copy as my gift to you, go to ms365.io forward slash MSI. That's ms365.io forward slash MSI.